foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. It's the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist and author of Move Your DNA and a bunch of other books about movement. This show is about how movement works on the cellular level, how to change your position as you move and why you might want to, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? Hey, friends. I am almost on my way to Europe, where I will be spending time in cities like Cambridge, Hamburg, Barcelona, and more. Do not be the person who sends me a social media comment full of emojis, mostly crying, and say, I can't believe that you came to my town and I didn't know. Go check out my website, click on the calendar and my live events, and you will find where I'm going to be in Europe. There are a few spots open in various places. Speaking of traveling, when I was in Amsterdam last year, I was blown away by this section where instead of having a bunch of flat and level seating, you know the drill when you go into an airport is miles and miles of chairs back to back. They had this stadium seating, which had these stairs that you could walk up and down, a big flat stretching area at the top, and a slide that went down through the middle of it all, not just for kids, but for everyone. So it it was just like a very textured experience while I was waiting there for the three hours that I had to to be there. So I'm just, I'm always interested in the way that cities are designed to move the people that live there and of course, vice versa. So in this episode of Move Your DNA, we're going to be talking about, you know, city moves. We're going to be talking about walkability and how cities and built environments shape us. We're also going to hear about mobility justice. What's that, you ask? Stay tuned to find out. But first, here's a question from our mailbag. KB, hi. We must be friends because you're calling me KB like all my friends do. 
Can you explain a bit more about how stretching works? If I'm doing a calf stretch, how often do I need to do it to see more calf flexibility? And is that actually what I'm aiming for when I do calf stretch? How long should I hold the stretch per time? How many times should I do it per day, week, etc.? And should I be stretching until I feel a small amount of discomfort or only just a bit of stretch? I'm just overall curious how stretching works because it seems like the, quote, right way to stretch has changed over my lifetime. And I'm curious how it works in a movement rather than exercise framework. So Ruth, first thing I will do is point you to the episode, the calf stretch. If you haven't listened to that, that is, I would say, a nice long toe dip into a shorter answer that that I'll give here. So I'll also link to that to the show notes if you are new listeners out there. I haven't heard it yet. But to parse the question, the idea of stretching has changed over time. And I think a lot of it has to do with the terms that we use. We call it a stretch often because of the way something feels, not necessarily what's happening on a a smaller perspective, like not considering a whole muscle, but a sarcomere, which is a part of a muscle. So I think a lot of times, anytime a muscle lengthens, we automatically think of that as stretching. As I answered in the calf stretch episode, someone can be doing the exercise called the calf stretch and not even be stretching their calves because of the mobility that they have. The biggest answer to your question, like what's the context of my stretching or how should I be doing my stretching? I would say with a lot of other movement of all the other parts all day long. So the calf stretch is really just a movement. It's just trying to move some of you. So if you did the calf stretch, our calf stretch exercise, which is you putting the ball of your foot up on something, I don't know, two to three inches high while your heel is still down on the ground and taking a step forward to put that ankle in a little bit of dorsiflexion. So instead of pointing your toes, you're now doing the opposite there. Toes, the, the foot has moved closer to your shin. It's a, a smaller angle at the ankle. That's the same thing that happens when you walk uphill. And you wouldn't call it a calf stretch then, maybe because the duration that you're experiencing it is much shorter. But simply all we're doing, if, if we could get rid of the terms stretch and strengthen and just talk about movement and loads, that might make thing a lo- things a little bit more clear. These are very early delineations at the beginning of movement science, which we're still in. But I think that over time, you'll just see a lot of these terms like endurance and strength. Like when we get down to the nuts and bolts of them, they don't really have strong, measurable definitions. We're trying to find or maybe even create language to better parse this natural phenomenon of moving. When people ask for a movement prescription, I'd say that it really depends on what you are doing particular movements for. For many people, they do the calf stretch simply to eke a little bit of movement in the lower part of their leg. That could be someone who is very immobile, not necessarily in the ankle sense, but maybe in the whole body sense. So therapeutically, maybe they're given this exercise prescription to move a what is now a currently sedentary area. The goal isn't to have longer calves. The goal is to not have immobility. So in that case, simply moving that area, the cells in that area, is movement. 
whether it's a stretch or a strengthening, it doesn't matter. It's just taking an area of the body that isn't moving at all and moving it around. And so for most corrective exercises, ultimately that's more my perspective is identifying and move your DNA. I call them sticky as the terminology is expanded. We can also call them sedentary areas within an otherwise active body. We're just trying to find those areas and move them. And so we have strong parameters, I would say, around the form of our various stretches or correctives specifically to move those areas. So if we call it the calf stretch, but if you wanted to cross out the word stretch and just put move, the calf move is stepping the ball of your foot up on a dome, dropping your heel down and stepping forward to the other side. So that's just this general idea of let's take an either immobile body or a body that's mobile in some areas and immobile in others and start moving certain areas. It doesn't matter what it's called. We don't have any other goal but to move it. Now, there is then the second layer, which is I'm actually pretty active and maybe I use a range of motion of my ankle to how I have been doing it a certain extent, but I'd like it to be able to cover a greater distance within my own body, like to be able to use more of my joints when I'm moving around. So now our goal shifts not only to move that area, but to have that area allow a greater range of motion without so much resistance in it. Because you can you can go beyond your active ranges of motion into the passive ranges of motion. That's often what we call a, a stretch, but not always. Sometimes it's just a lack of strength. So in that case, then then it's not only just step up on your calf stretch a couple days to move this immobile area. It's like, okay, let's look at the shoes that you're wearing and let's look at how much you're sitting and let's look at how much you are or are not walking uphill or downhill. And then the prescription for a greater range of motion starts to exceed only stepping up on the dome. Although I guess if you were unable to add those more non-exercise movements, then it would be, okay, well, then maybe step up on your dome 60 minutes a day, right? Because in the end, all we're trying to do is increase the frequency and the distribution of that motion so that you can adapt. So your body keeps the ranges of motion that it uses most frequently. So if you only move your calf in the calf stretch three minutes, maybe three minutes, three times a day, that's only nine minutes. And even if you do that seven days a week, that's less than 100 out. Of, that's less than 100 minutes out of 10,000 minutes. And so you can see that the signal to adapt isn't very strong. It's almost undetectable. Will you still receive benefits on a cellular level that you're moving? Absolutely. So it's not that it's not valuable. It's just that when we're talking about things like increasing joint mobility the i think one of the reasons you're seeing you know a lot of like stretching doesn't work etc it's very hard again this is goes back to good delineation with in in research is oftentimes the goal of stretching is to increase joint range of motion so the exercise prescriptions are you know stretches x y and z and the measure is you know, how many degrees can a certain joint move before and after? And then they'll find, hey, stretching isn't working. 
to increase the joint range of motion. And so now we have a whole stretching doesn't work. Get rid of that move. Because again, in a sedentary culture, I think we're often excited about getting rid of movement. But it could also be that stretching nine minutes or 100 minutes, if you did it daily, out of 10,000 minutes is not sufficient to increase joint range of motion. And so we have to keep your owl eyes and your deer ears on, to use language from, from nature school, when you're reading clinical work so that even though, you know, it might be stretching doesn't work is the headline, kind of the, the clickbait, if you will. But, but after you parse it a little bit, you can say, okay, well, what this paper is really saying is this volume of this type of movement doesn't elicit this type of response. So again, I use stretching to get into areas or, you know, we'll call them stretches to get into areas that are otherwise not really mobile within my own body. And then I look for where that that stretch or that movement that I'm creating in the exercise can be done at greater volume, either by adding some thing to my lifestyle or removing something to my lifestyle, like furniture. So furniture, getting rid of furniture for me was a was one way that I added a much greater volume of, I'll do air quotes, hip stretches. Only now they're not hip stretches anymore. It's just me using the range of motion of my hip because when the volume of, you know, whatever hip extra stretch I was doing before, which was in, you know, at the three minutes at the end of my cardio aerobics class I used to teach five times a week, that used to be my volume. And I never really made that much progress. I got rid of furniture and hey, I'm doing that exercise, you know, two hours a day, every single day of my life. Turns out that my body shifts its shape to match that volume. So I I don't think I've addressed all of your specific questions, but hopefully that gives you a sense of how to explain maybe some of the things that you're reading and how to see how stretching that that what you are after is what answers your questions for you here. So I'd like to thank both Ruth for the question and also the Dynamic Collective, which is this amazing group of companies supporting this podcast. We've got Soft Star Shoes, My Mayu, Unshoes, Earthrunners, all minimal footwear companies, and Venn Design making awesome minimal furniture. They sponsor the question and answer part of each episode of Move Your DNA. You can find more about them in our show notes. And if you have a question, send it to me via podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. I want to answer it. I've been thinking a lot about my conversation with Dr. Ihiheke lately from a few episodes back. We talked a lot about how your environment shapes you. Maybe you're a river person or a mountain person. So many of us live in cities now. More than 80% of Americans live in urban areas, and so we are being shaped by the cities in which we live. We've talked a lot on this podcast about some of the elements of cities that shape us, the abundance of flat and level surfaces on which to walk, and the feeling that nature is harder to find in cities, the way that traveling by car or bus can be the default. If you live in an urban or suburban area, you may have noticed that your town or city is built primarily for car traffic, with pedestrian traffic an afterthought. However, there are a number of organizations and individuals working to move that focus 
back to human scale development. For example, if you haven't checked out Blue Zones, the book or the website, this is one of their goals from their website. We help communities reinvent streets, neighborhoods, towns, and cities for people, not for cars. So how structures move us, I'm excited to say, is definitely on the radar of many. This is not my podcast or even a Katie Bowman centralized idea. This is something that many different organizations work on daily. So today we're going to start off with some basics when it comes to this topic. And I'm excited to welcome Samantha Thomas. Samantha is a built environmentalist, civic thinker, advisor, and strategist helping communities create solutions that advance walkability, well-being, and healthier places for all. Over the last seven years, Samantha has worked with 200 cities and towns across America, leading multidimensional and multidisciplinary teams in creating solution-focused, action-oriented blueprints for more walkable, bikeable, equitable, and livable streets, a shared future. Samantha, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you for having me. It's a delight. So I want to just lay a foundation of basics for those that have never really thought of cities having designs or shapes to them. I mean, certainly if 80% of at least Americans are in some sort of city shape, it's nice to start I guess, recognizing some of the terminology that people are using when they're building or considering or reconsidering shapes. Walkability will be what we'll talk about today. So what what is walkability as you define it? Yeah, well, walkability is more than sidewalks. It's more than just that physical infrastructure that allows someone to safely walk. It's really a design ethos stemming back from our most traditional city and town making days as a civilization. So ultimately, looking at how are places designed around the human and specifically the human foot. And so when we start to think of walkability, then that starts to bridge more into how are the buildings behaving and watching over the street to add to sense of security and place. Where can people gather and linger um, to add to our social tendency of humans and to create ultimately an environment for exchange of knowledge, goods, culture, services, and so forth. And so when we start to use the framework of walkable communities, it allows us as community uh, members to have a discussion on Are the streets performing that allow for people to easily walk? Uh, The first and last thing that we all do in using our communities is walk, whether that's uh, parking our car and then walking to our store or our home, walking down a main street, locking up our bicycle at the end of um, our trip. And so we have to start to bring back the human scale. So walkable communities are really putting the human back in the center of our city design. In my mind, I'm hearing you say all that. And I just think of like, I'm such an analytics and assessment tool user. I can't imagine the, how you would go about measuring walkability. I would not dream of asking you to say how you assess it, but like, (laughs) what would be one or two quick ways so that people can get a sense of the analytics that would go into a walkability assessment? What, what would some of them be? 
Yeah. So when we start to look at a place, so using, you know, a specific example of you're on your main street, let's say for smaller towns, you can start to ask yourself what kind of edge is being created between the buildings and then the sidewalk and then the street. So when we think of high quality edges in a highly walkable environment, you start to see things like great shade trees or street trees, uh, benches and, or other places to sit, uh, an organization kind of of the street furniture, you know, where's the signage, where are the bicycle racks, how do you have a clear sidewalk walk talk zone, as we call it, so that you can stroll side by side mm. and a loved one, um, you know, your kids have that buffer from the, the sidewalk or the walking space and the street. So there's that sense, sense of safety and security from the kind of human personal um, piece of it. And so where you start to see the way an environment affects our behavior or our decision to walk is ultimately if you have a road that may have a sidewalk, but there's no buffer edge between the sidewalk and the road, so there's no street trees, it's just an attached sidewalk, you'll often see less people walking because it's hotter, uh, it's louder, it's less attractive, it's less inviting. Hmm. Um, And so a lot of the work that I've been doing is around how do we understand how the physical environment shapes the behavior and lifestyle choices that we are making. And sadly, in too many places throughout America, we've engineered natural movement out of our everyday lives. I do a kind of a ceremonial long 20, 30, 40 mile walk somewhat regularly with the 40 miles being, you know, for like 40th birthdays and things. And so I I walked. <laughs> I, I We live in the same area as I understand it, at least, you know, on the same peninsula. And I walked from my town in Squim, Washington, up to Chimicum, which has this beautiful trail system for most of it. But for a portion of it, a couple miles, I was on the freeway where at some places, because the freeway doesn't have anything on the other side of the railing, it was just a drop off. My, I'm going to put air quotes around my walk was really me on the other side, hanging on the side of the railway because there was only maybe 20 inches between the end of the car lane and the beginning of the railing. So it was absolutely not safe to walk on. So would I give that like a one (laughs) out of a 10? Because I would say that the edge there is basically 18 inches between cars going 60 miles an hour and me. So I had to actually remove my body. There was no place to actually put my feet. I had my arms hanging and just kind of monkeyed it down for a couple miles. I had my feet kind of on uh, berry vine growth. And there's a great picture because I had posted in this in the magazine article that came out. Like, I'm not sure if I would call this walkable yet. It was the only way for me to get to my destination without a car. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, that would have a zero to one. Okay, all right. I was just, I was just wondering. So we would give that edge a zero to one. Okay, great. I'm, I'm, I'm down with the scale now. And you bring up another important point that you know streets and the speed of streets add to that quality of the environment too. So the more that you have higher speeds on a road, the more separation you should have in creating the right level walking or bicycling environment. 
And um, so obviously where we live on the peninsula, there is a great trail system, but there's also a huge gap in the trail system that creates that type of ease and access um, to destinations that people are trying to go along that network. And it's interesting to me. So I have two young children who are now five and seven who have been on this trail system. And I imagine where many people live, there are trails that might not be as extensive as ours. But even if you're in a park with a loop, like we're familiar with walking on trails, sharing non-car areas with both walkers and cyclists. And one of the things I'm interested in, it would be the difference between walkability and cycleability or bikeability, because I'm finding that as more people are more conscientious of getting out of cars and they want to go still on things that are fast and, you know, make it make sense for if they're using it for transport to and from work or if they just enjoy going fast and their recreation is, you know, 20 to 30 miles an hour, that I'm finding that my children are still required to behave as cars in their, quote, walking space where they are limited to they have to walk in a straight line. They have to know that you walk this direction on this side versus that side. And it's kind of interesting where even though we're removing the cars, everyone essentially has to still behave like they are a car or have this like major driving knowledge. So I'm finding that trails in in these certain areas, definitely if we go out in wilderness and if it's not mountain biking wilderness, which we're often also sharing it with, that walkability is still being kind of pushed to behave people on wheels who want to go fast. So I was just wondering, does bikeability have a completely separate rating as walkability or because you're limited to smaller allocations of space, you have to make both work? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's where the art of um, context of a specific place and the balancing of needs and shared needs of users comes Mm -hmm. into place. And so that's always difficult and not always perfect. Uh, So obviously, when we think of trails, the different users, primarily being people on bikes and people walking, you know, are going different speeds. And so what that often means is we need to think about making sure that we're building trails when and where we can wide enough Mm -hmm. so that there's that opportunity for two people cycling to easily you know, bike side by side and pass two people walking side by side or two other people uh, biking side by side. And so how do we kind of think about where we can put that added investment in? And the beauty is that often when you're building a trail, let's say this kind of design standard is often 10 feet wide for a trail Uh, But really, the cost doesn't go up that much just to add another two feet, which can make a really big difference when Mm. we think about wanting to have that mixing of users and types. And then also when we think about walkability and bikeability, answering your other question, kind of is there a difference, we can start to rank, you know, the quality of the environment slightly different based on the user. But I think the fun thing um, for me when we think about walkability and bikeability is it's trying to achieve the same greater outcome, which is obviously providing a a transportation choice and valuing people who choose to walk and bike as highly or if not higher than people who choose to use their Mm -hmm. car to get places. But there's also a lot of added co-benefits when we think about environmental health, our social health, Um, of course, our physical health. 
but then also economic health. You know, it's more sustainable uh, and more affordable to build quality walking and biking, human scaled cities and towns versus mm-hmm. what we've been doing over the last 60 years, uh, allowing our cities to be designed around the car. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that cultural shift in thinking. And with that, you know, while it sounds like you have a high tolerance to walk long distances, which is really awesome. I want to hear more about that because I too love walking. I would say for, you know, the average person, we're trying to um, think about how do we create more compact life radiuses or, you know, circumferences of where we live. And what we do know is that on average, and this is true for small towns as well, 25% of the daily uh, trips that we make are within a mile of our home or a 20-minute walk. And then 60% of our trips are within three miles of our home or about a 20-minute bike ride. So when we start to think about the tools together, you know, the bike becomes a great extension to our ability to walk and still allows for an affordable choice in um, transportation mode for people. Yeah, I'm thinking of a homework assignment for our listeners. Like if, if everyone could imagine three places that they are normally driving to that are under a mile, it would be fun to see if one of the reasons they don't opt not to drive is not because they're lazy, but because it's not safe or facilitated well. Like if, if everyone could create their own zero to five ranking system to actually pay attention to maybe some of the subconscious reasons we don't move out more. I mean, I certainly know that I choose to walk in almost every situation except this one extreme in, in places that I feel comfortable and can be relaxed and enjoying the experience. I'm not that excited to have cars, you know, whizzing past me or to not be able to hold a conversation. Exactly. Exactly. And I know you're getting ready to go to your European tour. <laughs> you know, it, it's so interesting when we think about where we as Americans like to travel and vacation to. And if, you know, Europe cities and towns are one of our, you know, key places that we like to go to, uh, if when you're there too, you know, obviously you'll be observing this, but these European towns are built around the human foot. And Mm. we have this kind of nostalgia of we want to visit these places. We want to absorb that quality. And yet we're still working on our own progression and transition to get there where we are open to getting on trains the whole time (laughs) when we're traveling or in walking everywhere and things like that. So it's just kind of that cultural mentality too, that it's part of the science of how do you shift and create change within your own communities. That's such a great point. You know, everyone will say, I barely walk at home, but I go to Europe and I just walk all day long. And a a big reason for that is because it is safe and practical to do so. Like these cities are actually, they're built up for walking and cycling as a lifestyle. Exactly. Okay. So this is just kind of more fun question. What is one of, or a handful of the least walkable areas you've uh, assessed? What stands out in your mind about maybe one or two of these places? Yeah, well, um, the least walkable places, uh, I'll pick on a a form of our towns, is really ultimately the suburbs. Mm. And what that means from a design perspective is that we've overbuilt our roads. So it's more common in these locations to have three to four to five 
lane roads, sometimes even larger. And then I think what the suburbs do illustrate from missing the human scale transportation land use connection is that buildings are often set far back from the road itself and often between the building and the road is off street parking. So swaths of parking and asphalt. And so what we see in these environments is ultimately a very car driven design, which is not inviting for any human. Um, There's no reason why you would want to walk in that environment. It's hostile. Uh, You know, if you are an elder or have other mobility issues, like good luck finding a place to rest. And if you do find a place, it's probably in the hot sun or in the elements of the weather based on your climate. And so, you know, what we have to start to think about is we want to transform cities and our suburban communities that are, you know, having a high demand of growth still because our uh, cities across the country are continuing to grow. People are becoming more, you know, focused in uh, more like urban like environments is how do you start to create the village scale place? How do we kind of flip the transportation paradigm on its head to understand the more that we create walking, bicycling, efficient transit options within communities the easier easier it will become for the motoring public. Um, And so there's many different ways that you can start to create new policy, create new design standards, and the toolkit's pretty large. And so it's just a matter of uh, developing that community will and that ground cover for political leaders to start to make some bigger changes. So I think that's the type of environment that to me is really, truly unwalkable and and so hostile. And, and sadly, you see people uh, who have to walk in that environment. So when we start to think of that equity or justice piece, we, I think we really need to ask ourselves, who are we leaving behind when we create places like that? Mm. Well, and that's a, my next question is what makes for a truly walkable community? And when we say something is walkable, walkable for whom? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think the beauty of when we think about the walkable community is that one part of it, especially when we're thinking about retrofitting or infilling our rural towns or more urban neighborhoods, is that a new process needs to be created so that truly community members can come together and share in the work of transforming their streets or alleyways or, you know, parks, plazas, whatever it might be. Um, and, and to develop that ownership, which then allows for um, the right mix of people within a community to be at the table. And so we are not forgetting or overlooking the needs of our different um, cultures, our different uh, true like physical mobility um, needs and things like that. And um, when we think about walkability from an economic standpoint, it is the most affordable mode of transportation. I mean, we all are given our two feet um, or, you know, if we aren't able to walk, we'll be able to find the assistance we need from wheelchairs or electric scooters and things like that. But if we're not creating those shared spaces to be able to depend on ourselves and our own mobility by design, then we're driving up the cost uh, of living 
Uh, it's always apparent in urban areas and um, rural communities, and in the urban areas specifically, traditional neighborhoods of communities of color and things like that that have been left out of the design. You know, we see that these two kind of types of communities need to often own a car to get to work or to get to their grocery store. So we're not creating the right level of mix of uses and transportation choices to make a place affordable for people. So that's becoming a very big issue. And I think in the more urban settings, we're definitely hearing this through the terms of gentrification or displacement. And and it's a big thing that we have to try to tackle as community members and get outside of the individual mindset and more of that kind of community tribal mindset and how we want our communities to thrive. I've got this little piece that I'm going to read, which is from a letter to the editor of the New Times, which is a newspaper in Rwanda. And the original piece was about, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially this idea that so many cars had kind of taken over the town and that they needed an attitude adjustment about the importance of cars. And this letter was saying, quote, it is, the only, it is only the bourgeoisie, both high and low, who lead totally sedentary lives and need a lifestyle change that requires an attitude change. Too many people believe you must be financially hard up when they encounter you on the road walking. I can't count how many times some would-be Good Samaritans have offered me lifts, often insisting against my declining of those offers, obviously in the belief I must have a serious problem if I am reduced to walking. For those with this kind of attitude, not walking has nothing to do with a lack of space, as in reality, Kigali has a lot for those who love to walk for pleasure, especially early in the mornings before the sidewalks become clogged with foot traffic and car exhaust fumes, and the heat becomes increasingly unbearable. So, Samantha, is walking a sign of poverty or of privilege? And do we need more walkable, bikeable, mobility-friendly infrastructures, or do we need a cultural shift or both? Great question. I would say we definitely need both. Uh, It's a cultural shift to be able to get the infrastructure that we need. And it's kind of that chicken or egg thing. Does the infrastructure help create the cultural shift? So it's working in tandem in that regard. And I would say that, unfortunately, in the U.S., I think in a lot of places, walking has been a sign of poverty. And people who have to walk either by choice or because they can't afford, you know, to own a car or something like that, are to me, we're sending a sign that we are treating those individuals as third class citizens. Mm -hmm. I was recently on a project in Florida where that quote really resonates to the environment that was created or that is created in many uh, communities in Florida, where when you see someone walking, the perception is, you know, that they don't have the means to walk. But that's not always true. And so we can't assume that and create those social stigmas. So immediately after I was in Florida, I went to Copenhagen, which is one of the world's biggest uh, bicycling cities and walking cities for that matter, too. And you would never be able to guess who has, quote unquote, privilege or more money than the person next to them, because it truly the environment, the infrastructure is prioritizing human efficiency, human travel, and 
it's a cultural norm there. And so we have to think about how we want to get there. And ultimately, by creating more choices in transportation, we're allowing people more freedoms and more um, opportunity to, you know, be able to engage in their community in a more equal footing. Beautiful. Yeah, it's just um, being someone who almost exclusively walks for, yes, the health purposes of it, and also because I do it as a way to constantly observe the walkability of what's around me. Like, I think that it's it's really easy when you don't actually physically experiment with walking in your own spaces to think, to perceive it to be more or less walkable than it actually is. So I get out there and do it regularly and going, yep, I'd have to use a car to get here, mm-hmm. you know, like to really do that. But to recognize that the fact that I'm able to do it is because of, you know, a tremendous amount of privilege and time Whereas someone could be taking that exact same walk and not have the choice to do so. And so in the end, it just really seems to come down to choice, having to do it versus having multiple options. So I appreciate your feedback and your answer on that. And then I guess finally, municipalities face all kinds of pressures, climate change, health of citizens, that might make them consider better ways to accommodate active modes of transportation What will it take for active transportation, for natural human movement to move up the priority list for planners, do you think? Yeah. Well, I would say the good news is that in a lot of places, municipalities are understanding the transportation paradigm needs to be flipped on its head. We just can't afford to continue to build bigger, wider roads. We've proven that. And so to further, you know, put the investments where we need to be heading really requires uh, better synergy from citizens. So kind of that grassroots level and then the top down kind of decision making level within communities. I think the important thing that is easy to forget when you're frustrated with your city or a place that you're living and not putting the investments where you want is that ultimately decision makers hear a lot of needs. So like you were saying, climate change, health of citizens, uh, you know, we need to attract more uh, buildings. So we have, you know, a different economy or whatever it might be, is how do you start to bring a common voice together as a place so that we can make better decisions together? And if we keep having kind of just separate ideas and lots of noise, it's really hard for a decision maker to really that financial backing into something that really is a change in paradigm as far as how we've really planned our cities. I think the good news is that as communities work to come together and make the case for more walkable environments, what we do see is that it it helps address uh, climate change issues. It helps to address public safety issues and human health issues. And we know that by design, walkable communities actually, in the long run, are more affordable and are the most sustainable way of building. A um, author who wrote a book called Walkable Cities, um, Jeff Speck is the author, he put in there that a walkable community is actually more sustainable than everyone changing their light bulbs to, you know, the environmentally friendly Mm. um, ones. Because what we're doing is we're better using our land and we're giving people the choices not to use their car, to become car light. 
And then also uh, by getting the green, the parks, the open spaces, the, you know, the lungs of a built environment, we're able to better address how our water filters back into the waterways and, and things like that. So it's a very holistic approach. But you're right, we have to change where we're willing to put our investments. Definitely in America, we are not uh, financially at burden. We have more money than we know what to do with. It's really, do our cities and towns have the political will to be making change in the way we invest in our design of our communities? Wow, amazing. Well, I guess if someone else is taking the responsibility of helping cities become more walkable, then I will continue the assuming some of the responsibility of helping others become more comfortable in their own bodies so they can walk and thus participate outside in their communities in these open walkable spaces and movable spaces. So thank you, Samantha, for coming on to speak with me about walkability. Samantha Thomas is a built environmentalist, civic thinker, advisor, and strategist, helping communities create solutions that advance walkability, well-being, and healthier places for all. You can connect with her at Citizen Samantha on Twitter. Samantha, thanks so much. Thank you. I enjoyed this. When I was looking into walkability for this episode, a friend of mine, Machiko, thank you, Machiko, pointed me to the work of Maria Sippen. She's working on her master's degree in urban planning in Portland, Oregon, and is on the board of Multicultural Communities for Mobility, an organization that is dedicated to advancing urban resilience and health within communities of color. Maria specializes in mobility justice, and I had heard of social justice and climate justice, but I hadn't encountered mobility justice. And as a movement teacher, I think it's really important that I did. So it turns out it resonates a lot with what I write about in Movement Matters. It's hard to stack your life when you can't move with ease and safety and through your environment, and it's hard to get vitamin community if you can't get out and about to meet your neighbors, and it's hard to get vitamin nature if you're stuck in a car or on a bus. So here is some of our conversation. Maria Sippen, hello, and welcome to Move Your DNA. Hi, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I'm really excited to talk to you about my work with my organization, Multicultural Communities for Mobility, and what I'm doing as a scholar in both Portland and in Los Angeles to do this work with our communities. Yeah, I am always grateful that people will come on the show because I feel like people are doing very important work in the world. So I appreciate you stepping away from serving much bigger needs and being on this podcast. All listeners appreciate being informed. And so hopefully it'll motivate others to take action or at least expand their worldview. So before we get too far along a path, I want to set up some basic definitions. So first, how would you explain mobility justice? And how did you get interested in that? Sure. I'm glad you asked. I always want to make this work relatable, and it's so important that we translate these heavy and complex issues in a way that people can understand so they can see themselves in this work and maybe be inspired to make a change somehow or to have a little bit more empathy for people who are experiencing it. And mobility justice is still, I think, a term that we are 
trying to define and people define it in their own way. I would say that my peers at Multicultural Communities for Mobility are taking the lead in that. And we are defining mobility justice as both an outcome and an approach that we are taking to address inequities in our community, specifically around transportation issues, but it's beyond that. It really is about getting to zero deaths in our community uh, in terms of traffic injuries and traffic fatalities and making sure that people are not getting harmed out there, whether they're biking, walking, jogging, strolling, rolling, or driving a car. And mobility justice is also about making sure we are validating people's identities and embracing them and allowing them to have the kind of healthy and productive life that they deserve without the, the um, negative impacts of racism and all these systemic issues that people experience when they are simply moving about their communities. So mobility justice is incredibly loaded and heavy. And our work really is about trying to make this more real for people as an outcome where we live. But for the for the doers and um, action makers out there, how can we help them take part in this so that they can make their communities better in terms of um, making mobility justice a reality? How did you get interested in it? Well, you know, I think my journey goes back to um, life in Los Angeles. I was raised in Los Angeles. And I know that over time, as I, as I was growing up, walking and biking in my community was not something that my parents or grandparents wanted for me anymore. It's something that we depended on in our community just to get to school or places that were important to us. And I think over time we started to realize like there are all these safety issues that we are concerned with. I know particularly um, for my parents who were concerned about a young woman um, navigating her neighborhood on foot. And as you got older, that's something that parents don't necessarily want their kids to do. Um, and I know not many people have the luxury to take other modes besides walking. Walking is essential to people's lives. And we know now, as we are exploring this as scholars, that communities have tremendous issues, especially communities of color, when it comes to navigating their neighborhoods. And um, I think for me, it was just a personal passion to be able to make communities more bikeable and walkable. And it's not that simple. And I discovered that, you know, it's not just about promoting people to walk and bike and to enjoy these communities, but to um, understand what different people experience when they do that every day. And so I volunteer for Multicultural Communities for Mobility. I've been doing that for five years now, and they really have helped me um, understand uh, more deeply what many communities and cultures and racial and ethnic groups are experiencing in their respective neighborhoods in terms of mobility justice. And um, I began as a bike safety instructor to really get into this work. And I realized quickly that it's not just about improving people's skill sets to ride a bike, but it's trying to improve the environment that they're biking in that makes that experience better for them. I've seen walkability as a social science measure come up in various 
public health and other social science investigations that are now starting to look at city design, urban planning, health in blue zones, this idea that the walkability of a city would relate to the health of the people that lived there. And there are a lot of definitions. This is so new. There's going to be lots of malleability and definitions. I'm going to link to a piece put out by Harvard University called What is a Walkable Place that has and compares many different definitions. I'll put that in the show notes. But Maria, how do you define walkability or understand walkability? I'm glad we're getting to this. I think walkability is another loaded word. I think we'll have to provide to our listeners here uh, an entire like <laughs> reading list or, or sure. definition list because we're talking about things like mobility justice and walkability. And these really just started to emerge. But in this context, um, MCM is really working to expand how we understand walkability. For real estate um, professionals, they talk about walkability in terms of scores in a neighborhood and, and how easy it is to get to um, a grocery store, a library, um, the laundromat, a bar, and all these things are essential to people's lives. Mm. But you know, when you're doing mobility justice work and you're really trying to put on all these lenses so that you don't miss someone and their experience, we are defining walkability in a lot of other ways. And we are thinking about enjoyment and safety and acceptance and affirmation um, and all types of other things that, you know, are really hard to articulate. For example, you know, we we often bring in the experiences of young people of color. And this is something that we should talk even more about. And it's something in the news all the time. But we, are we really listening? If you ex imagine the, a young black person, a, a, a young black man, or let's say a black child, let's just get it down to that, a black child walking in a neighborhood. What does walkability mean for this child? Mm -hmm. You know, walkability for many of us means that this child is able to go back home to his mother. And for his mother, walkability means that he can go around his neighborhood without getting stopped by police, being asked why he's out late or not being stopped by a neighbor asking why he is walking past his house. And um, that this child is also able to get to school on time and without the fear and the trauma of everything that he might come across as he's trying to get to school. So I think, you know, walkability really means like, are we able to ensure that someone's quality of life, especially a person of color, could be the same as someone else's when we're navigating this street? And for an urban planner like me, that's extremely important to think about because for decades or for, for the hist entire history of our field, for example, we might have been a lot more focused on constructing a built environment that had the right balance of concrete and greenery and parking spaces mm -hmm. and housing mm -hmm. and all of these really important features of a neighborhood. However, 
um, there are so many other layers mm -hmm. that we have to be more conscious of as we have this elite privilege to construct our streets and our neighborhoods through codes, through policies, through architecture, design, and engineering. So uh, walkability really takes into consideration the built environment, cultural environment, and social environments that all impact how we walk. And it's sometimes the invisible things. Is it like... Um, a woman who is walking at night and how often does she have to check behind her shoulder out of fear that, you know, she might be crossing the wrong path or place, you know, and, and walkability is being able to choose any street to get to where you want to go without fear that something is going to affect um, your safety or your well-being. So all of these things are walkability mm. and the things that we should consider. Thank you for expanding that that idea. So I'm thinking right now, you know, of the next 50 questions that could branch off of that. <laughs> but I think that my next reflexive question is, I feel like human nature, and maybe it's not all humans, but certainly the nature of engineers and, and designers and planners is that I could relate most to the woman looking over her shoulder as she's moving forward in a dark city as I'm trying to get from point A to point B. So yes, it's walkable. There's a place for my feet to go. There's a place for my feet to go that are not also where cars are going. And there is a path between where I'm staying and where I want to go. But is that something through urban design, meaning that there's features of lights and cameras and other technologies that give us a sense of security or is this design in that trying to refashion the behavior of everyone who's occupying all of the spaces that we're going to move through? So you are kind of occupying two roles. You've got a foot in city planning and design, which I imagine is, again, the greenery that you're planting and where it goes and how much light's coming through and what you're going to put beneath the feet that are going to be walking or moving through that space. But for your program, I'm thinking of your scholastic work. Are there concrete things you fashion or is this about fashioning ideas and bringing about change through influencing the behavior of the people basically that you're going to be sharing the space with? It's all of those things. And I, I'll break it down for you here. Urban design is one aspect of it. I think it's an aspect of it that people have been able to grasp a lot um, better because it's it's something that people can see and construct. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of things um, when it comes to designing cities um, that are beyond what we measure um, with a ruler or what we calculate. So for example, it, it's it's beyond behavior, but um, you know I think behavior is a big part of it. It's behavior and perceptions. We are working as urban designers, urban planners, um, to influence our colleagues, especially people who have been in this field for generations or decades. They've just been doing this a long time, and they haven't made this shift in their mind that it's beyond the street. So it's 
it really is about talking about this stuff in a way that can help people shift their perceptions so that they can pass policies and change how they do this work and really continue to make that shift that we need so desperately so that our end goal is fewer traffic injuries and deaths, but also fewer harassments on the street and fewer, you know, assaults and race char- racially charged crimes. All of these things fall in the responsibility of urban planners, elected officials, police officers, and everybody who who participates in in cities, you know, and even neighbors, everybody has a role in this, but I think we're really looking to the, those in power who can influence this change. And I also want to include public health um, because I am a, a public health professional. I am really trying to bring into the spaces that we work in a lot more awareness around disabilities mm. and abilities, cognitive and physical. You know, I did, I talked about the black boy walking to school and the woman walking in the dark, but what about someone with a mobility device? Mm-hmm. And how are we really um, catering to people who have to use a wheelchair or a walker or has um, poor depth of perception or blindness? You know, I think we are failing many people here um, on that note, but it's it's interesting to see that in cities, we can better implement ADA guidelines and we know how to design for that. But people don't know how to design to make cities better for different cultures, races, and ethnicities. So mobility justice, as I'm trying to articulate it and trying to do this work with my colleagues at Multicultural Communities for Mobility, is that we are trying to bring about this understanding Um, to include abilities, disabilities, but also ways that people of different races and ethnicities are disadvantaged. And so that's something that I am extremely passionate about in terms of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and how I, as a planner, can continue to make it real for people through my professional work. And that is continuing to take into account the experiences of people with limited English proficiency, people of racial and ethnic minorities, and um, people with low income. And also to add to that, of course, people with cognitive and physical disabilities, which isn't included um, often in a lot of other areas. But combining all of those things will help us reach mobility justice and have the walkability and bikeability that we desire. But overall livability, you know, that we're creating communities where people can be themselves fully, where people can be successful and happy and healthy. And I think we have a tremendous role as urban planners to facilitate that. We might not be the ones engineering the streets, but we are those facilitators, those mediators, and those thought provokers. So I I have a tremendous privilege to keep making that happen. Are there any examples of cities or spaces even within cities that have made some suggested changes or a few suggested changes that you make regularly so that people can get a sense of maybe some of the tangible differences? And I'll just give an example. I've been in California and California, 
in the spaces that I've moved through in California, which are, you know, California is a huge place. I was in a state park and the sign for the trail system wasn't just, you know, the list of trails and the list of miles. It was broken down to show how much of the trail was wheelchair accessible before it got to the point where a wheelchair would not, you know, with maybe standard tires wouldn't perform. Maybe it was like on sand at that point. So it gave you a sense of you didn't have to inquire or know or have someone walk it to see whether or not you yourself or someone in your family could go out and be in this space. But it really delineated well exactly how accessible it was. And so I just I took a picture of it and I could actually put that in the show notes so people can see the difference. You can see, oh, yes, I get that that this is what's happening here. And then on our trail system, there's many picnic benches along this, you know, 100 miles of trail system. Like there are picnic benches everywhere. But a lot of times, and our trail system for the bulk of it is paved. So that makes the entire thing wheelchair accessible. But the picnic tables themselves, which were the rest stops for the people on the walk, were not. Meaning you couldn't get your wheelchair comfortably up to sit at the table. So they replaced the picnic tables with Tables that simply are a little bit longer on one side so that you could bring your wheelchair underneath it and eat, you know, at the table with equal comfort as everyone else. So these are small changes in design that make outdoor spaces more enjoyable, I guess, equally for everyone who's there. But do you have any other examples like that so that it can become more real in people's minds? Sure. Let's talk about all kinds of things that could improve people's experiences in the whole mobility justice umbrella. Um, One of the things that I I would love to mention and talk about um, is addressing defensive design and getting rid of benches and surfaces that uh, discourage people who are houseless from sleeping or resting there. I think we've all seen this in some way, shape, or form. We've seen benches that have unusual armrests to keep people from laying down on it, uncomfortably angled benches in subway stations or in other spaces where you think it's about efficient space, but it's more about, you know, deterring people from spending time there. So that's mobility justice, is getting rid of that kind of design and making spaces just more equitable for people who may not have a place to sleep or rest and just need to spend time somewhere. Um, Another design feature that was extremely important, obviously, are our curb ramps and ADA accessibility and trying to create um, safer surfaces for people to move about, widening sidewalks whenever possible. Although expensive, it's such a good investment, not just in urban areas, but in rural areas to encourage walking. There are also protected bike lanes and going beyond just putting paint on the ground, but creating a separate surface so that somebody can um, walk or bike or use their wheelchair in that protected lane. Um, We are also talking about high-level mobility justice um, and transportation equity improvements, such as establishing uh, an equity and justice office in a transportation department and ensuring that there are enough staff people present to continue to ensure that we are meeting these guidelines or creating new guidelines to adhere to 
to make places more equitable and welcoming. So there's all kinds of things in between from high level policies to design. But overall, it really is about how are we redirecting our resources so that we are investing in the movement of people when they're walking, biking, and using transit. And this is a highly politically charged conversation, too, that people will get into, whether they support biking and walking or not. But highway space and highway investments are something that we should be talking about more. And how we invest um, in our infrastructure tells a lot about our priorities as a government and as communities. If we are putting all of our billions of dollars in widening highways and removing homes and removing space and green space for highways, that really shows us where our priorities are. And if, unfortunately, that is not a climate sustainable future. And it is taking away from resources that ensure that people can walk and bike and be more active and have that healthier life. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. <laughs> it's along that topic, but I feel I want to bring in this other piece. Sure. I, I would say that I grew up walking around from place to place, but was walking around with all of the migrant farm workers who were also walking from place to place because not everyone had cars. And so it's quite normal for me to have many people walking around on foot for different reasons. So now I'm kind of living in this fitness, health, natural movement space where there is the idea that we all have extra time to exercise and walk and we don't have to be at work for 12 hours a day, or we didn't spend all day using our bodies doing backbreaking work. So now we want to go for long walks and we have the choice to walk because I also have a car. So it's always a choice for me. So it seems like a privilege to walk, but at the same time, it is also seen as a sign of poverty. So I'd like to know what are your thoughts? Is walking a sign of poverty or privilege? From either your perspective or the perspective of mobility justice and just considering mobility and urban design as a whole. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about that. And, you know, I think it it really depends on the context and the neighborhood that you live in. In places, you know, along the coast, in more affluent neighborhoods, for example, walking for leisure could be a sign of privilege because in some neighborhoods, people can have a, a joyful, uninterrupted two-mile walk just by stepping foot out of their house only a few, maybe a few blocks. And they can really enjoy the environment and the nature and have those mental health benefits from walking. But in places, walking is their only mode of travel because they can't afford a car they cannot qualify to get a driver's license because they may be undocumented or not have the physical ability to drive. And so walking is the only way. And in many ways, that could be seen as a huge um, disadvantage. And there are a lot of inequities there, but it really depends on the context and where you live. But ultimately, mobility justice isn't about faulting people for the choice that they make and what modes they take or what modes they have to take. It really is about creating the environments, both um, built and cultural, 
so that people can make all those choices and have the choices and have healthy outcomes. It becomes um, a privilege to walk if, you know, someone else who has a different identity does that same walk, for example, where you are walking, but they are interrupted by police violence. They're interrupted by um, sexual harassment or other types of assaults on their being. And so that's where we really have to think deeply about how we can start to shift the way we design our cities and the way we make policies and how we are creating um, unity in the places that we live in so that people can have these shared experiences rather than the ones that polarize or divide them. I'm just trying to think, what can I, what can I do as someone moving through my community space to improve mobility justice? Or is it all entirely at the policy or building level? No, everyone has a role in this. And people ask that all the time. So I'm glad you're asking that. I think we can make some very conscious choices and actions to continue putting our support in communities and in our neighborhoods so that people who are not like us, for example, or people who don't have the privilege we have, um, to enjoy those spaces. And I think there are a lot of things that we think about um, on a personal level, like welcoming people and sharing public spaces, interacting and talking to people. For example, if a woman is at a bus stop and I'm a woman and I'm standing there with her, I'll greet her and say hello and make her feel less isolated um, in that space if I feel like it's something that I can do to, to help make that late night bus wait less, less awful. And I know I appreciate it too when people strike up conversations with me um, that are friendly and, you know, harmless. And it does make a difference. Um, There's also things that we can do in our homes. We can vote a certain way to continue to vote for policies and resources that can make um, lives better for marginalized and underrepresented groups, that we continue to make immigrant-friendly spaces and policies, that we continue to invest in the success of Black children, that we support schools that are struggling All of these things can be done by regular people who are not urban planners or elected officials. So there are a lot of conscious choices we can make um, to make spaces more welcoming. But it really comes down to our day-to-day decisions, how we spend our resources, where we spend our resources. I also like to tell people to support um, small businesses owned by people of color. So if there's like a Latino market, you know, go ahead and build relationships there and greet people and keep coming back and find, find out what's important to them and what, what is affecting their business and their well-being and their livelihood and just strike up those conversations and be a genuine um, ally, someone who is authentically interested in what they're going through. Are you seeing cities and towns considering mobility justice in their development decisions more and more often? 
In little ways, they are. I think most bureaucracies and large agencies are doing this work in terms of transportation equity. That's a lot more accessible for them. That's language they can understand. But we are working as an organization to continue to partner with these agencies in large cities and small towns to help them create action plans and to consult with them on how to make this real. So we can go from brainstorms to things happening in the community that'll actually make a change. So uh, mobility justice is, is a little bit more of an uphill battle in some places, but we are doing this work now and we encourage people to continue to follow us. Um, Multicultural Communities for Mobility is undergoing a rebrand right now. We're trying to um, reconceptualize our identity as an organization and how we continue to do mobility justice moving forward. So we are changing our name to People for Mobility Justice. And this is the first media outlet where I'm sharing that. So I'm excited about that. (laughs) Thank you for sharing it here first. This is very new, and we've been doing this work for almost a decade, but it really is finally now coming into fruition that we are getting a lot better about speaking about mobility justice and mobilizing our communities and hiring staff people and making sure that we can help cities and community members and all types of people who are interested in this um, find their stake in it and help them become more effective uh, in this work. So we're really excited to be people for mobility justice and find ways to partner with all types of people who just want to improve their communities and build solidarity and unity in ways that they haven't before. And doing that through transportation and streets is an excellent way to do that. You know, I think there's a lot we can do with how people experience riding the bus or train, how people bike and how people walk, even how people secure housing and all these other things. So we're excited to to expand on our work and to bring more people in. For people who don't really delve into any local politics, like within the communities that they live in, if they go to their city or township website, is it listed on everyone's city website, their transportation meetings, policies that they're considering changes? Where can people go? I mean, understand that every single city is going to be different and has a different website, but in general, is this pretty accessible information for people who make up the city? No, I think cities are terrible at finding ways to make this a lot more accessible to people. There are efforts, obviously, like to translate materials and to create public meetings in um, central areas. But overall, these meetings are really hard to participate in. This language is heavy. This Mm -hmm. is a lot to talk about. And the agendas don't always look welcoming. And if people are invited to go, they might only get to talk for a minute or two. And most people need more than that. So, um, you know, it's it's something that is listed in most municipalities. There's a, a standing meeting for either land use and planning or transportation. And there are topics around um, biking and walking and transit in these spaces. But I do ask that if people do want to participate, they should continue to start 
listening more and to listen to marginalized and underrepresented groups, especially people of color, black communities, women of color, people with disabilities, immigrant communities, um, to listen and really understand what's happening. And you'll find that mobility justice work is not just about biking, walking, and transit. It's ensuring affordable housing. It's ensuring that people can age in place, that they don't have to get displaced once they stop earning a large income and that they can continue to live there as as they grow old. It's about making sure we're building enough housing and not stopping developments that create affordable housing. It's making sure that you know, people have access to education from kindergarten all the way until they're, you know, 100 years old. It's all of these things. And as we talk about it more, all of it is mobility justice, really, and and creating that kind of unified community um, that that really is the real livable and walkable place that we want. Well, thank you again for taking your precious time away from much more important things and being on my show I appreciate you coming on and hopefully turning on some light bulbs in people's minds. Thank you so much. And stay tuned for People for Mobility Justice. And feel free to reach out to me if you need to have these conversations or you want to tackle this where you live. All right. I'll make sure that we have all the information to contact Maria in our show notes. Maria, thank you for being my guest. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Maria Sippen is a mobility justice planner and board member for Multicultural Communities for Mobility, which is dedicated to advancing urban resilience and health with communities of color. She is fortunate to call Los Angeles, California and Portland, Oregon, where she's working on her master's degree in urban planning, her home. She's working with colleagues at Portland State University to develop a framework to guide transportation investments the only academic health center in Oregon and largest employer in Portland to make walking, biking, and transit use the best way to get to this healthcare campus. We'll put some links to some of her work in our show notes in case you want to learn more. So speaking of walking, I just did a 20-mile walk with fitness columnist Nicole Song of the Seattle Times, and she did a piece on the walk. I posted the article to social media, and I'll also post it in the show notes, but there was a great comment on that post, a sort of rapid-fire questions about doing a 20-miler. So instead of one question, today's question sponsor, Earthrunner Sandals, is bringing you five. Check it out, five questions and answers. So are you ready? One, how much water to take in midsummer? Good question. It's going to be very relative to where you are. Big difference between Phoenix and uh, summer in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, maybe talk to people who are out doing long events in that area. There's usually always someone who's in charge of marathon training in the area. There's maybe someone at your local fitness center who can answer that for you. So you definitely want to have enough water to be safe. And, And on the other hand, I had posted a picture of the 20 miler I had done a couple of weeks before. And I noted that I will often try to do a 20 miler where I focus on not being so comfortable while I do it. So I'll take minimal food, if any at all. And then again, one bottle of water. And I'm not backpacking where there's no chance of me getting water. I'm always 
really close to within a, a quarter mile or a half mile of houses and for emergency would always have access to water. But just to just to kind of keep myself challenged. So again, you're going to figure out what that value is for you based on your summer temperatures. Question two, backpack or messenger bag. Messenger bag is my preferred, although my messenger bag is really this long strapped over the shoulder, completely cloth bag that has no edges or or uh, lumpy straps or anything that pokes into me and I can easily swap it from one side to the other. It has a great volume. The whole thing wads up and holds it into, I can hold it in my hand, but I could fill it with maybe four towels and a lunch. So the volume of it was pretty significant and I lost it in New Zealand, but that was my favorite walking bag. But when I do go and want to take some stuff with me, I will use actually a kid's backpack, one of my kid's backpacks. They're just a little bit smaller. And again, I don't I don't like to take a lot of bulk with me. It's not necessary. I don't feel like I'm running a marathon or anything like that. So a tiny backpack is what I've been using as of late. And if anyone in New Zealand found my bag, please send it ASAP. One pair of shoes or several options. So I have found through trial and error one pair of shoes that works really well for me. You can see my rationale in this on a blog post that I wrote a few years back when I did my first, I think it was like a 36-mile walk. And I I struggled with the shoe thing. So I've got this, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. And so walking in wet shoes doesn't really work well for long distance as far as skin goes and skin friction. So I have a Vivo barefoot tennis shoe that's really thin and light and flexible, but it is their waterproof version. And so that works well. And then obviously for shorter distances, and it's about a speed thing for me when I'm going long distance like this, I'm usually without my family, which I usually am with them. So I move pretty quickly. If I'm just going on a long but slower pace backpacking, if I'm doing 11 miles or 12 miles, but I'm giving myself an hour a mile, then I'll just wear my minimal sandals, actually. So it's going to get, it's a personal thing. It depends on the state of training, what you're used to. But I try not to figure out what shoe I'm going to wear on a 20-mile walk on an actual 20-mile walk. That's best established through doing lots of fives and sevens and and 10-mile walks, maybe even a 12-er. What foot slash body prep do you do? I do a lot of the correctives from whole body barefoot and simple steps. My my ankle, my first big, big walk that I ever did, it was my left ankle that it's amazing. You'll have this like tiny area in your body that will make it so that your whole body cannot take another step. And I knew about that ankle. I had just never ever asked it to walk all of the steps for 36 miles before. So it's interesting. A thing that bothers you a little bit when you only move a little bit can turn into the thing that bothers you a lot when you move a lot. So after that walk, after that walk where by the time I got to mile 12 or maybe it was mile 18, that ankle, that foot would have happily just put it up on a couch, but it was dragged along with all the other parts so it was really kind of burnt into my mind. Like if if you want to be someone who's got this really large volume that you're doing, you need to you need to address it with more regularity and more gusto. So my favorite exercise for my ankle, the one that was a game changer for me, and, and this is after I had a foundation of all of the kind of baseline correctives, is sitting on the floor 
with my legs tucked behind me. So you're like sitting on your shins with your knees folded all the way back, but then tuck your toes under. So instead of being on the top of your foot, you've got your toes tucked under and then sitting your weight back on your heels. And it was a yowza at first and has been for a long time, but I just do it with consistency. And I really watch the position of my knees and my ankles and my shins and haven't had an issue with my ankle ever since. And I've logged quite a few, um, I mean, many, many miles, but I've got six or seven long distance, you know, 20 plus milers on it. And it's never been an issue as it was the first time. So take care of your feet. Question number five, will I be able to get back to my routine the next day or should I plan a full day of rest? The end? Good question. Like I said, my ankle, when I had had it, made it so like walking the rest of the day when I had stopped and even the next day I was hobbling around a little bit but I've done 20 milers before like where as soon as I'm done I can feel it in my hips and my knees and I won't be you know doing any more mileage that day I sleep really well the next day when my feet first kind of bear their weight on their first few steps I can definitely feel that I've done something but usually after 20 minutes of walking around and doing all my regular stuff I don't feel it anymore. But again, that's that's me at this stage. I've led a lot of people through these longer distance walks. If you've ever come out for a retreat where the second day is a 20-mile walk, again, it's the ankle or that hip for many people where they, you know, they're tending to it the next day. And I spent a good a good hunk of time tending to that ankle. I mean, it was never what I would really consider injured. I never had to do any injury prevention. I just like really ramped up the corrective exercise for it and got it moving because my daily life wouldn't move it in the way that I needed to after I had just banged however many steps makes up, you know, 30 plus miles. So anyway, that was super fun, Noga. Thank you for asking. Thank you to Earthrunners, which I'm going to take with me on another 20 miler I'm doing tomorrow. That's two in one month. Boom. First time I've ever done that. So that was a milestone for me. My next milestone, don't tell anyone, is three 20-milers either in a week or three 20-milers in three consecutive days. Not sure when it's going to happen. Maybe I'll save it for my 60th birthday. But anyhow, in addition to thanking Earthrunner, thank you to the rest of the Dynamic Collective who has been sponsoring this series. They are, in addition to Earthrunners, Softstar, My Mayu, Unshoes, and Venn Design. They sponsor the question and answer part of each episode of Move Your DNA, and you can find more about them in our show notes. And if you have a question, send it to me via podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. I want to answer it. European friends, let's hang out. I mentioned that there's a couple events open that's going to be in Spain and Germany, Barcelona and Hamburg, respectively. You can find a link to all those open events in the show notes, and you can also find more on my live events link on the calendar on nutritiousmovement.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have a question, email podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. If you enjoy listening to Move Your DNA, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps other listeners decide whether they should take a chance on this podcast. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. 